Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show on the choose yourself network today on the james altucher show And so how did you get into this? Like, what were you? My guess is at some point you were trying to get good at something, maybe even elite at something. Maybe it didn't quite work out for you. Like, (laughs) what, what were you trying to go for? If you were prepared and you encounter something that doesn't match up, now that's a learning opportunity. I am obsessed with figuring out how to hack the so-called 10,000-hour rule, the idea that you need 10,000 hours of dedicated practice to reach your peak potential. So I was so happy that Anders Ericsson, the developer of this rule, which he figured out through tons of studies and research and helping people reach their peak potential, I was so excited when he decided to come on my podcast. He originally came on the show two years ago, episode 162. His book, Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise, was mind-blowing to me. And then I had so many questions on top of it, and he was so generous at answering them. See, he discovered the 10,000-hour rule. He taught me exactly what it means to do dedicated practice. I remember him telling me, people have been convinced that as an adult, you're pretty much fixed and that there's a limit on what you can do. But this is just simply not true. And we talked about every aspect of how you can achieve peak potential. I think one of the best takeaways from this interview is when Anders talks to me about finding the area that you should dedicate yourself to, he told me to look at the joy you get. He also gives a lot of useful tips about finding a teacher, learning by doing, and having willingness to fail at heart, and really discovering your own ability to master something, 
which I know for myself is such a joy and pleasure in my life. So please listen to this podcast episode. Just give me the thumbs up whenever when we're rolling. Okay, we're rolling right now. Good. So I'm just going to start it and we can yeah, start talking. Yeah, great. It's just a Wonderful. regular conversation. Yeah, I really enjoy that. Good. Um, so everybody, I'm excited Anders Ericsson, one of my personal heroes, is in the studio for the podcast. Anders, you have this book coming out today, Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. And welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. You know, actually, um, and as I was saying to you earlier, for some reason I thought we were going to do this via Skype, and then you walked in here, and I'm like, yes, I get to meet the man. We're going to do this podcast. It's so much better when it's not Skype. So I'm thank you for coming up here. Well, uh, it's it's really wonderful seeing you and talking to you like this. Well, you know, and I, I remember, I, I, I don't know if everybody knows exactly who you are, although they've read about you, I'm, I'm sure, many times. I mean, you've been popularized in several, I want to call them, I don't say this in a negative way, but kind of pop science books. Like, for instance, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers uh, talks about the what he calls the 10,000-hour rule, and we'll have an opportunity to, to talk about that and maybe correct a little bit of it. But this idea that with 10,000 hours of practice, and again, we'll elaborate on that word, with 10,000 hours of practice, essentially anybody... Um, talent or no talent, and we'll discuss that too, anybody can become an expert or maybe the best in the world at what they do. And you've done a ton of research to suggest, and you, you've, you've researched world-class performers in many fields to discover exactly what it takes to become, let's say, a world-class performer. And it's funny, one of the studies you referred to actually 25 years ago, I was in. So, um, or you referred to one of the researchers, Fernand Gobet, because uh, I'm a chess master. Oh, and really? When he was at Carnegie Mellon, he's of course the Swiss champion or whatever. Uh, when he was at Carnegie Mellon pursuing his graduate degrees, I was in his study that originally showed about chunks, you know, between difference between grandmasters, chess masters, and novices, and so on. So it was fascinating. Oh, wow, to that's participate. exciting to hear. Wow. Yeah. So, so let's talk about it. What is what Malcolm Gladwell called the 10,000-hour rule as opposed to what really might be the rule. Maybe I'm going to take it a step back. What's What do people refer to when they say talent? Well, I, I think different people use that word uh, differently. I, I personally think of talent as innate talent, something that people are sort of born with without having to attain it through any kind of training and effort. Uh, and uh, I guess what I've been finding here, looking for kind of innate talent, and, 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 and I, I sort of feel it's a little bit destructive uh, in college students. They go out and look for what they're talented at, whereas I think, you know, they would be much better off actually deciding on what they would want to become and then actually try to uh, get there by, you know, the kind of training that we've found to be effective for other people who've been very successful. So that's fascinating because a lot of, a big question people in their 20s have uh, is how do I find my talent? How do I find my passion? What would you suggest if someone was going to say, um, okay, I'm in my 20s, I've got the energy, I've got the time, I've got the abilities, uh, what should I pursue to become a world-class or an expert-class performer at? How would you kind of guide them to sort of find their area? You mentioned one guy, uh, Dan, I forgot his last name, but Dan who who uh, 
decides just out of the blue, he's 30 years old, 31 years old, he's going to, out of the blue, put in his 10,000 hours on golf, and he's never even played golf before, and to be, he wants to be a professional golf player, and he's he's well along the, the way. But how would someone find something to be, uh, to pursue? Well, I, what I'm fascinated by, and, and I, I think that some of these people have been sort of uh, convinced here by some of our research that this idea here that as an adult, you're pretty much fixed. There's limit on what you can do. It's just not accurate. And, and I think in the book, we talk about this work on memory training. And, and I think what is key about the memory training is that the way you get better is not just by doing more of the same. So it turns out that mathematicians and other people who work with numbers all day long, they only have ability here to remember sort of up to about 20 digits. And what we were able to show here with this college student that we more or less just encountered accidentally uh, because he was able and willing to actually be part of the training, uh, you know, with two uh, to 400 hours of training, he was able to reproduce uh, lists of over 80 digits. And that was the, was that the world record at the time? That was uh, the uh, world record at the time, exactly. So that's amazing. So basically with 200 hours using, and and he had to kind of figure out what the training techniques were. You sort of talked it through after each session. He had to figure out what the best training techniques were himself on his own, but but he had the del- what you call deliberate practice to kind of, um, and, I, and I'll, you could define it differently from me. I'm just go, working off the book. Uh, he had basically you giving him feedback. He had his own um, results. He could see the immediate feedback. Could he, did he remember the list or not? Um, you guys would discuss how to better train and what he was doing, what was going on in his brain. And so you were able to kind of, he, he stayed healthy. So you were able to kind of work through the principles of deliberate practice as opposed to just him randomly practicing, you know, lists of numbers. And that's how he kept improving. Just to make a distinction, I, I think we kind of would like to think of that more as purposeful practice where we gave him a particular goal. And then we also arranged a training situation where he could actually do the same thing over and over and get immediate feedback so he could make adjustments. Uh, so deliberate practice, we try to save for when you actually have a teacher that has taught other individuals like a music teacher who then actually supervises the training and actually builds a skill based on accumulated knowledge in the domain. So that's kind of where we would argue deliberate practice. Now, obviously, it's kind of deliberate practice is purposeful practice under the guidance of a teacher that can actually sequence the kind of training that uh, he knows from past experience uh, is going to be effective to improve your performance. So it's funny because, so, okay, so... Really what's more, and you kind of underline this quite a bit, what's more important than um, talent and quote-unquote 10,000 hours of work is this notion of deliberate practice. Like every time you're trying to improve at something, um, use deliberate practice. So maybe define that a little bit more, and and I want to back off then and kind of discuss a little bit more about talent and the 10,000 hours and the notion of prodigies with guys like Mozart and so on. So what is deliberate practice? So I, if I want to get better at learning a language, What's what's deliberate practice in that? Well, uh, uh, we would argue deliberate practice would be seeking out a teacher 
who has Number had one. experience. Uh, and then basically that teacher would kind of assess where you're at. Uh, so some people have some prior knowledge of the language. So the key question is, what would be the appropriate kind of training that you would engage in in order to kind of lay out the fundamentals that would allow you then to build and then gradually acquire uh, uh, your performance by engaging in, you know, training of <coughs> grammar, uh acquiring new vocabulary and and all sorts of things. And in particular, I guess we're interested in your ability to use the language so you would be able to talk to other people and use the language rather than, which is a norm here, I guess, in the school system is that you get these written tests as opposed to uh, you're really being tested in your ability to speak the language. So it's doing versus kind of sitting and learning and being tested and so on. So you have to actually go out there, spe- you, you get the, the you, you, you start doing, and the mentor or teacher who already has a lot of experience is able to kind of say, no, don't do it this way, do it this way, and then you, and then you repeat. Right, and, and, and I think a very nice example here uh, related to uh, talent, I had a friend who claimed that he couldn't learn languages, uh, and then he fell in love with a Mexican woman who didn't speak hardly any English, and he actually, within six months, was able to uh, acquire, you know, maybe, maybe not total proficiency, but a remarkable improvement of his ability not to speak uh, Spanish. And and I think what's interesting is that when you have a motivating factor like that, you're going to be basically now willing to do the hard things that are required to master the language. And, and if you contrast that with a student who's maybe studying a language that they don't even think that they're going to be using – that obviously is not the ideal situation to motivate them to do the hard things that will actually improve their language performance. So, so the, and a motivating factor is different than motivation. You kind of have to find that sort of uh, gold at the end of a rainbow. You have to have sort of at least envision that it's there uh, to sort of get through the, the, the journey through the rainbow. Right, and, 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 and that I think, uh, personally, I find that finding that kind of motivating kind of source that that keeps flowing and keeps you actually getting back from your efforts. So you can now see the deliberate practice as an instrument by which you actually now reach a higher level. But that is ultimately not the reward in itself. It's your ability now to do things like, for example, if you're a musician, be able to play in front of an audience and actually feel how that audience is moved by your music. Or uh, maybe uh, musicians would actually take time and actually play around. So they're actually creating the music that they can hear themselves and enjoy the process of actually exploring music. Those are the kind of driving forces that I see as being the key here to people who uh, reach exceptional levels. So, so again, it's the um, number one, finding a teacher, having a motivating factor, doing rather than just sitting back and learning, which I kind of underlines sort of, I don't want to say the failure of the educational system because that almost sounds political, but it's sort of goes against the modern educational system where it's all about let's memorize facts as opposed to doing something. Uh, you know, it's funny, like when I when I read a book, like let's say I read your book and then I'm 
talk, I always think the way to really retain the information from a book is if I go and tell someone, I just read this great book, here's the five things I've learned that's going to help improve myself. So that's what I do with a book like yours, and uh, I think that's the way I remember things later. This is what I, by actually saying it out loud to somebody and trying to convince them this is how to learn, uh, I'm able to better remember the book as opposed to just trying to remember it without any, doing anything else. Right, and, and, and I think that that's kind of the key that I see in all sorts of experts, their ability of actually mentally sort of think about things to reason and be able to now kind of work with it as opposed to this idea here of just absorbing a lot of knowledge. And, and I guess the extreme case is just memorizing where you may be able to actually reproduce a book without actually even have understood the main ideas. But I would argue that the real expert, they're extracting the main ideas exactly like you were talking about. And that make those ideas their own by relating it now to everything else that they know. And, and sometimes maybe even finding, you know, things that you know that seems to be in conflict with your generalization. And then I guess that leads to more thinking and, and discussion. I think another big factor of a deliberate practice, if, if and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I get from the book is building almost, you don't quite refer to this way, you, you refer to what's called mental representations, but I want to say uh, building a language out of whatever concepts you're trying to learn. So for instance, let's say I'm trying to, the basic example that's the most direct, let's say I'm trying to learn how to memorize a string of letters. If they were just random letters, I might have a hard time rem remembering 50 letters in a row. But if I turn those letters into a sentence like, you know, quote-unquote, here's what I'm going to learn from this book today, unquote. Now I can remember 50 letters in a row because it became a sentence that it's easier to remember. And you, the example with the guy who was um, remembering these strings of numbers, he would build them into three or four number chunks. Or chess is another example. The grandmasters had in their memory... Um, each position, like the king is castled, or the king is under attack, or the bishop is fianchettoed, uh, they would build chunks, mental representations of bigger parts of the position, as opposed to just remembering where all the pieces were, which is which they actually couldn't even do better than a novice if they if they div di divided it up that way. Right, and 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 I think there are just many different words, and I think language is just one way that actually shows that you've been able to sort of internalize it so you can actually express what it is that you're seeing and, and you can reason about it. And, and, and I guess some people think that language is, is a key factor here for, you know, when you reason with yourself. Uh, one could also think about images as a mm. way here of actually seeing patterns and being able to see how various things kind of link up to other things. And I think with the chessboard, you know, thinking about how different kind of relationships between chess pieces now creates weaknesses and strengths. And so you remember you memorize those weaknesses, the list of weaknesses and strengths, as opposed to all 64 squares on the board, and then you're able to reconstruct the position as they were able to do in those, these famous studies. Right. And how, so, so again, how, so it's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to build mental representations, but what's the process of doing that now. And I guess you do that with an instructor, you do it over time, you 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 apply yourself somehow. Um, but what's what can kind of um kickstart this a little a little more? Well, I I think if we take chess for example, I think one thing that uh you know, and, and you're more of an expert than I am, but 
uh, as you get better in chess, uh, you're actually being able to sort of plan moves at a deeper level. So that actually, that kind of planning is happening in your head. It's not like you're allowed to move the pieces to see what happens when various uh, moves are being made. And, and I think that kind of captures my idea of a representation as something that you can manipulate. And, and I guess we know that if you're a really good chess player, uh, you don't really need a board. You can basically have right. it all in your head and you can still sort of think through options, uh, which I guess to me, you know, illustrates this internalization. And the question is, how do you get to that point? I believe that a planning and playing chess and actually seeing here and having some kind of feedback mechanism that tells you, did you see all the relevant things? And, and, and we found that playing through uh, games against masters, almost simulating you're playing against, you know, the, what used to be the world's best players, then you can actually try to predict what the move is going to be. And now you can then compare your thinking with the move that was actually being made. And now that gives you some degree of feedback here, whether you actually were aware of all the relevant features that the world-class player obviously was aware of. Do you think in some cases where you, like, like again, we'll take chess as an example, or you could even take language if you have, like, a good language program, but... Like here, let's say if I go through games of Masters and I sit and think, well, what would the Master play next? And then you 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 look at the next page and you see what the Master played next. Do you think that removes as as much of a need for a teacher? Like you can kind of virtually create a teacher for yourself that way? I think that's a very effective way of, of learning. Uh, I think if you work with a teacher, the teacher would know all sorts of related maybe positions that had similar kinds of issues. So instead of working through the games the way you encountered them, the teacher would be able to kind of actually help you get five other similar kinds of situations that you could then basically be working on and sort of get the chance here, especially if you miss something, you would then be able to get another opportunity to kind of identify it and then consolidate the changes that you need to do in your thinking to be able to, next time you encounter a similar situation, be aware of, of those aspects that you maybe initially did not pay attention to. Well, a great example is you talk about uh, the Polgar sisters, and and I promise we'll get to an area other than chess in a second. But <laughs> like the the so Lazo Polgar wanted to basically test out his theories, which are similar to yours in some respects. And he basically said, "I'm gonna have a bunch of kids, and I'm gonna make them world class at whatever I want them to make, be world class at." And he was debating between tennis and chess. He decided on chess, and from what I and they all became world-class, two of them became, you know, world champion level. Um, it was unbelievable, really. Three sisters in a row became the best female chess players ever. Uh, and from what I understand, he did give them, um, they had instructors among the best players in Hungary, but he did also give them thousands and thousands of chess problems, all, like, one after the other, they would be related to each other. Like, let's say a thousand bishop takes knight, problems and a thousand, you know, rook and two pawns problems and, and so on. He would basically kind of clump these problems together so they became used to over and over practicing the same thing in the similar situations. Yeah, I actually was fortunate enough to meet Lassel Polgar. He's spending uh, the winters in Miami wow. uh, these years. And, 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 and he was telling me about 
he kind of had a library of, of chess games that he actually had indexed these chess positions just for the purpose here that you were mentioning, that he would be able to pull out similar kinds of positions and actually present them as a more effective way of teaching his daughters uh, you know, what the right move would be. How do you think he knew that that was the right way to teach? So again, repetition on similar positions. And I want to say it's like almost like the Bruce Lee quote, and I, I believe you mentioned it, um, uh, the Bruce Lee quote, I'd rather, uh, I'd, I'd rather fight the man who's practiced 10,000 kicks than the man who's practiced one kick 10,000 times. So showing that repetition on the same thing is almost more valuable for, for learning a skill. And, and, and I believe that it has to do with the depth. So if you actually are working on kind of a particular problem, you will actually now refine the way you're thinking about that problem. If you basically encounter new problems of different kinds, uh, then it's much harder to get that sort of feedback cycle where you can attune yourself so next time when you encounter a similar situation, you're prepared for it. Yeah, and so so now, okay, let's say uh, there's something, a, a field that's not as measurable. Like, let's say I want to be better at sales or better at negotiating or better dealing with people. Um, what do you think, what are some ideas I can I can do to start, you know, building performance. Right, and and, and I think sales is an interesting one. Uh, so it's semi-measurable. Right, uh, you know, so, so if you basically look at the amount of money that a salesperson is bringing into the company, once you deduct all their expenses, you know, that would be sort of an objective measure that a lot of companies uh, like to use to measure sort of, how good a salesperson is. And if they can sustain that over years, it really means that they're not abusing the customers. They're basically being able to, you know, uh, uh, work with them for longer periods. Now, what I found is that that the people who've been working with sales, what they point out is, again, you know, finding somebody who has proven themselves as successful and now actually studying what that person is doing and maybe even that person eventually will become, you know, a sales leader where where they actually are promoted from being a salesperson. So now they're actually working with individual sales uh, individuals, you know, to improve their outcomes because everyone is obviously motivated here to increase the amount of income uh, to the company. And one of the things that I found most interesting was uh, talking to them about how much work they would spend before they actually meet a customer. So there's a lot of information that you can actually, you know, extract. So before you actually meet the person, if you have a good idea here, one, what are they allowed to decide? And secondly, what are their needs? And if you can infer now, what would be the arguments that, potentially would be a very effective against any other competing uh, sales uh, men that would have contacted them. And and that kind of extra work of, of actually sort of trying to be prepared for the situation strikes me as, as a very generalizable thing. And, and if you are prepared and you encounter something that doesn't match up, now that's a learning opportunity. So now you try to figure out what was it that basically was wrong here with my expectation here about how the interaction with the uh, basically the potential customer would be. And so, so 
putting together an educational program on sales, it's almost like they could come up, build a library of like a thousand different sales situations and some of them similar, some of them not so similar and run kind of the sales trainees through each situation and uh, correct them and and modify them and have them try again on a similar situation and so on. Right, and and if you could reconstruct actual events, I think that would be even more motivating to somebody to know, okay, so here you have the preparation situation and what is it that you're planning to do? And then we actually have documentation about what happened in the sales event. So it's almost like now they know that one person actually had this opportunity and they did this, and basically here is the outcome that resulted from that. But it, I agree totally with this idea here of creating a library, and, and maybe sometimes you can videotape, maybe other tape at times you can reconstruct it with actors. So, so basically individuals would have that kind of realistic uh, experience, and, and then I think knowing that this actually happened just makes it much less an issue here about, you know, did the teacher really know what's right? Well, here we have 10 cases that you can kind of experience. So you can kind of see what happened in those. So let me ask you this. Like, uh, obviously, uh, and this is you've, you've talked about this quite a bit in the book, that maybe the, it's not necessarily 10,000 hours, as, as Malcolm Gladwell put it. But like in this case of the sales, uh, let's say someone did put together the ideal sales training program or language training program or whatever. How many hours of work? Like, let's say I'm horrible at sales. I'm at baseline zero. How many hours of work do you think I can? I would have to do this deliberate practice with a, uh, an instructor who's really put together this library of situations, and I do repetition, and I build these mental models of different situations. How many hours of work do you think I need to do to be go from a zero to a ten? Well, I, I love to be able to answer that question, I, given that we don't have these libraries, and and we don't really have kind of a sales education that basically meets these criteria, I think it's going to be hard to, to give you any numbers. Is it different in every industry? Well, I, I would argue that maybe some of the best evidence that we have is from medicine, where you can actually now start, where, where people are actually now incorporating sort of deliberate practice in the training. And, and one example that we talk about in the book is, uh, so here's kind of the, the setup. You're performing a surgery with the supervising surgeons. So basically, if you make any mistakes, he will be able to stop you or correct them so the patient won't be harmed. But you videotape basically that surgery, and ideally it would be performed now by somebody who is training to become a surgeon. And then that videotape is then being analyzed. So you can actually pinpoint what are the things that actually could be improved. And then the uh, basically the surgical trainee is working in a simulator where they can actually repeatedly now you know master these kinds of techniques and when they're ready they go back and do another surgery here with the supervising surgeon so now you have that feedback cycle where you have teachers who can analyze the videotapes and and show very clearly to the trainee what the problem is and then design training with a simulator that would actually you know, allow them enough repetitions so they can actually uh, perform that. And you know, it's very interesting what you say in the book about the medical practice. Let's say I'm a doctor and I don't do this. I just simply do lots of surgeries and I have 30 years of experience. You kind of point out that when somebody, let's say a doctor, gets into kind of 
I don't want to say a rut or a routine, but they kind of just keep doing the same thing over and over without necessarily getting the feedback loop, that their performance will actually decline over time, as opposed to what normally people would think that they would get better with practice. Right, and and, and I think if you think about drivers, uh, most people wouldn't think of 50-year-olds as being substantially better than 30-year-olds just because they have 20 more years of driving experience. And if anything, I think sometimes you actually automate it so you're not actually paying attention to the driving situations. And there's some really interesting research showing that most accidents happen in particular situations where basically a pedestrian is walking out. You can't see them behind, say, a truck or something like that. But by basically now training individuals so they actually retain now the sensitivity to potential dangers. Uh, you can actually see a correlation now with reduced accident rates. So there's a lot of situations where the typical situation is so typical that you can actually deal with it successfully, you know, 95% of the time. The problem is that there's a 5% of the time where there's something that looks like a normal case, but it's not. And there you actually see that a highly experienced individual who's going on automatic pilot is going to be less well prepared to deal and sort of anticipate those potential problems. So when it comes to expert performers, that's almost defined by somebody who has a very good record. What I find is that they prepare. It's almost, you know, like they're trying now to do their utmost. So by monitoring, not, you know, basically doing a, okay performance, they can actually find ways here to keep themselves motivated and keep, you know, improving and anticipating problems and other things. And that, I think, is really the kind of expert performer that I would like for us to promote. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You're probably familiar with the classic book, The Inner Game of Tennis, where the author talks about the importance of visualization. So you're about to make a serve, you visualize it in heavy detail first. Uh, How important is that for kind of expert performance or learning expert performance? Well, I, I think it's key when you're engaging in any kind of sport that you actually have a plan for what's gonna happen. And I think when it comes to people working at a driving range in golf, and just try to hit it, you know, one ball after the other, and just try to hit it harder and harder, that's not going, that's not what uh, expert golfers do. They would actually decide what it is that they want this particular ball to do. And then basically, you will actually monitor now whether they have enough control over that ball to make that ball do the same, the thing that they intended. And they keep varying that, so that actually develops now the ability to control. So it's not just sort of one thing where you just hit it as hard as you can and then see what happens. You're actually deliberately trying now to maybe have spin on it or or you're using an unusual club or whatever. But as long as you have an image about what you expect, then you can actually learn from it because if the ball is not doing what you intended it to do, that would then start this feedback loop where you would try to refine and 
you know, uh, attain more control over what you're doing. So I see the importance of kind of repetition and to get the control over what you're doing. Is there a danger that I could fall into the easy? So I can control what I'm doing if the if my goal is easy. So if I want to hit the golf ball 50 yards, uh, yeah, at some point I'll be able to do that every single time, you know, 50 yards at one spot. Um, but when do I start kind of challenging myself to do more like 60 yards, 70 yards, 150 yards and so on? Well, there I would argue that maybe a golf coach would be the better judge here for a particular player. But but is that important, though, the idea itself to constantly that, that, challenge? That definitely, you know, uh, you should actually train to do things that you can't do. Hmm. So, so basically, if you're an ice skater and you're trying now to do a more complex jump, if you train the easy jumps... What is the likelihood that you're going to be able to do the quadruple or whatever? It's essentially zero. So the way you actually get to do the quadruple is actually to kind of try to do a triple under more and more complex situations where you actually, you know, manipulate various elements. So you get to a point here where you have enough air time that you can actually complete one more rotation. Mm-hmm. but. And you may actually have to strengthen your legs in order to be, be able to get that lift. But it's sort of this gradual process. And, and I think you can see here how a teacher would be able to help you do corrections here and work on mastering these sub-pieces until you're actually ready to even try the complete uh, quadruple. So there's a real important role for mentorship or teachers or somebody who's achieved expert or world-class performance who, who is now able to kind of assess, all right, you're ready to kind of jump a little bit higher, you, you need a little bit more um, leg muscle work, you need all these little things to add up, and and we'll start to be able to do like the quadruple, whatever. Um, right, and, and, and there is an interesting study that actually looked at ice skaters and found this difference between uh, the elite skaters and the sub-elite skaters. And they found that the sub-elite skaters spent more time doing things that they already had mastered. So in some sense, that makes you feel better, right? If you're training and you can do everything. But it also, you know, doesn't allow you now to improve like the elite skaters who were constantly trying to do things they couldn't do. Mm. So, it's so almost, that was the main difference. Was uh, that was one of the biggest differences? The elite was were always aiming to do what they couldn't do, whereas the expert were mastering the the same thing over and over. And they did master it, but they weren't doing what they couldn't. Right. Do. You know, and, and and it's not obviously black and white, right. but 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 there was a gradation difference, and I think basically that willingness to fail uh, is is sort of at the heart because failing. If you're trying to do something you can't do, you're going to have to start out failing. But the the joy that you will get when you eventually, you know, are able to master it, I think that is the kind of thing that I would point to uh, if you wanted to motivate people to really do the hard work. And I think the the myth of talent is often what reduces the motivation because if someone is trying, let's say someone loves ice skating and they start off basically good at it and they want to improve, but then they start failing over and over again at the quadruple, they might throw up their hands and say, I can't do this. I don't have enough talent. And what you're saying is you can do this with the right teaching and, you know, assuming you're not, you know, physically unfit that you can't do this. You can do this with the right training, the right amount of time, the right amount of reputation, the right amount of practice. Um, because the, the the talent aspect, there's no such thing as I can't really. 
Right. And, and I think what I find dangerous is this idea that somebody, and maybe it's not a, a, a coach or, or trainer, or but somebody's telling you that you can't do it. How would you know? It's almost like if if you think that they know more than you do, what can you do but accept that? But I think that... But once, society might do it too. Society has the myth of talent, the myth of the prodigy. That's definitely true. And, 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 and there's a lot of cases here where... And I think uh, Laszlo Polgar was actually uh, telling me about all the resistance that he encountered in Hungary when he was trying to do his uh, training with his daughters. You know, they thought that he was almost a little, you know, abnormal. And and this idea that he would be able to kind of train all three of his daughters, you know, seemed weird. And when he had, it wasn't clearly wasn't genetics, like he was not a chess player. They just kind of came out of nowhere and became the three best women in the world. Exactly, you know, and and that's pretty compelling in retrospect. But I can see that while they were trying to uh, make uh, progress here and get resources uh, to get help here with the training, uh, that was a sort of a difficult situation. And and what I find interesting is the evidence that people cannot attain uh, an exceptional performance. That's really weak, you know. Uh, so if you accept here height, you know, with being tall as the center in basketball obviously is an advantage and being, you know, short uh, when you're a gymnast is, is sort of going to be an advantage. But beyond that, we don't really know of any individual genes that are necessary for somebody to succeed. So let's take, you had a lot of great examples about violinists that have been studied and the world-class violin, and you looked at violinists that were all in the same school and then... Um, uh, sort of analyze which ones were going to end up being teachers, which ones were going to end up being kind of second-class performers, and which ones were going to be world-class performers. And there was one definite distinction between all three categories, which is the world-class performers had about, on average, 7,400 hours of practice by the time they got to school, and the teachers, while still excellent, or, you know, the the future teachers, while still excellent, had about 3,800 hours of practice before entering the school. So it does seem like there is this, while it might not be talent, kind of driving them into this point of adulthood, how much how many hours of time they put in as a child did seem to be a, a distinguishing factor. Yeah, and, and, and I think that was kind of really surprising and interesting to a lot of people. And by the way, that seems like where the 10,000-hour myth comes from. Right, and, and, and basically we had some data on them when they were age 20 where the, the kind of the elite group out of the three uh, actually on the average had 10,000 hours uh, of, of of training and and I think uh, that that was kind of misinterpreted to say that everyone in that elite group actually had over uh, ten thousand hours, uh, which is slightly different. But but I think the key that I was trying to uh, uh, kind of emphasize was this idea that regardless of your talent level, it's really every, even the most talented, if that even exists, are going to have to spend you know like ten thousand hours. I mean, that's, if you look at it, that's a, a big chunk of time. And especially we know that they're investing maybe four or five hours a day. And that can't be, you know, basically time when you're daydreaming. This is a time where you need the most energy in order to really kind of search for your 
uh, outer limits of your performance to be able to keep improving. Well, let, let's look at a couple of examples where the word prodigy or talent is, is thrown around, and you mentioned some of them in your book. But like Mozart, for instance, is considered the most talented prodigy in music history. That I've seen that sentence about him, and you dispute that. Well, I, I think most people don't recognize that Mozart's father was actually a pioneer in training, especially children. And that he was a, a famous musician, uh, and he was composing. But at the time when Mozart was actually born and, and started in training, he actually stopped composing. And we know that he actually designed training activities for Mozart uh, and his older sister. Uh, <clears throat> so we know that there was a lot of early training that went into Mozart's performance. And, and and if you're really looking kind of for prodigious performance, we try to come up with a measure uh, because music today is ranked in terms of the number of years of study that you need to have in order to perform a piece. And we related now basically the public performances of pieces and the age of the child. So we get kind of like a quotient. Hmm. And what we found was that Mozart was above average he was over you know a uh, uh, hundred uh, <clears throat> but there was a tremendous number of more recent prodigies that were more prodigious than he was and actually the most prodigious performance that we found was a Suzuki uh, uh, trained uh, musician that was not considered to be a prodigy because in Suzuki Basically, the training kind of assumes that this is like learning a language. It's something that anyone can do if they're given the right kind of training, where the mother is actually using the same methods for teaching language as they're teaching now the music uh, playing. Yeah, it's interesting because you also relate uh, the development of perfect pitch to language acquisition. So you even mentioned how people from, who speak certain tonal, more tonal languages are better able to uh, develop perfect pitch than, let's say, not atonal languages. So that that was very interesting. Kind of how you were how you were raised affects this uh, ability that many people associate with either talent or no talent. Right, and and I think the finding now is that you need to get training between ages three and five to for any child to be able to acquire perfect pitch. And there's some recent uh, work by a Japanese researcher that showed that all the children that he trained were able to uh, basically attain it. But what about me? Can I get perfect pitch now? Like, I'm 48 years old. Can I Can I do it? I have no perfect pitch right now. Right, and, and, and I think the develop, the developmental window between three and five really constrains adults from from getting it. So, obviously, you're older than five, uh, and and there is some adults who try to get it, and they can improve their performance, but it doesn't seem to be the same. And they've now done research where they've scanned brains, and it seems that if you actually get that training early on, your brain will actually develop in a slightly different way. So. It's a little bit like turnout in ballet and stuff like that, where it's really critical that you get the training during a particular phase of your development of your body and brain. And if you don't get that training, it doesn't seem like you're now able to reverse that. 
But there's so much other things that you can do that the number of things that we know are really developmentally constrained is relatively limited. So it shouldn't worry you. Uh, because For instance, surgery. Becoming a better surgery probably isn't related to what age I was when I, when I learned it. Uh, basically, there's no evidence that I know of uh, that suggests that. And so let's say, so right now, like a lot of chess players, like, or I don't know if you've ever studied, this is not mentioned in your book, but have you ever looked at like a case like Magnus Carlsen, who's the best chess player in the world? He he was probably the best chess player in the world at a very young age, maybe 12 or 13 years old. Was he a prodigy or of some sort? He started training really young, but many kids start training very young. Well, I, I think Minus Carlson is a really interesting example, and and I think there is a book kind of coming out that will actually talk about his uh, early development. And now, all that I think that we know is that he actually had a very organized kind of chess environment, so he would at least, you know, have the best possible training. <clears throat> now whether in fact other individuals would be able to develop similar abilities with the same kind of training conditions, you know, that's hard to know. But I think the finding that I would emphasize is that there's a lot of things that you can learn about how to become a better chess player that you can actually learn from the training that Minus Carlson was involved in. So like having the the instructor, I know he had a very famous grandmaster as an instructor, um, probably putting in time every day, having uh, um, presumably a motivating factor, which is like winning and feeling good about that and kind of uh, praise on that. Uh, I, I guess those were his part of his deliberate right. practice. And, and, and one of the interesting questions is, you know, when he was introduced to chess, was that similar to how other chess players were introduced? Because I think a lot of chess players, they kind of start playing chess, and at some point they get good enough, and then maybe they are being trained by uh, skilled uh, chess players. In music, if you actually start up learning how to play an instrument by yourself, uh, what most music teachers would tell you is you've, created a lot of or acquired a lot of bad habits that are actually going to take longer to get out of you than it would have been to learn it correctly from the first time. And I think that's why, you know, classically music-trained individuals and also ballet dancers, the importance is to actually start out with the correct fundamentals because now you can actually have the things to build on in order to attain the highest levels. So I don't know, could it be that maybe Magnus Carlsen started out with the right kind of fundamentals for thinking about chess that then made actually his uh, success uh, possible. So so let's say I want to suddenly get back. I, I pick a field, whether it's language or chess or golf or sales. And again, I just want to kind of take it from the top. I want to get better at something. I want to even be world-class at it. I'm... I'm what should I do? What's the first step? I would say finding a teacher that have some experience of training individuals like yourself of the same age and the same background, that's what I would recommend. And I guess we're, I'm now 
trying to match up individuals who are interested in starting to acquire skills with teachers who have had some experience of training in individuals. It's a great business idea, kind of like a dating site. Well, uh, you know, I would love to basically learn from these because I think this is actually a relatively new idea, and, and it's almost like people didn't even hold it as possible that they could actually reach very high. So even if they started at an old age, they had very modest goals for what they actually would be able to achieve. So so I think, you know, this provides hopefully an opportunity here to get motivated people and then we can actually learn, are there any limits? But before people try to do it, uh, we're never going to know what is possible. And so, so okay, finding the teacher... Uh... Uh, having a motivating factor, like why do I want to, you know, be a professional golf player? You know, having some sort of motivating factor that, you know, drives me through the pain. And then what's what's the next step that I can do as opposed to the teacher? Well, you know, I think by developing these representations and actually when you're training, you know, rather than trying to make any shortcuts here and, and actually reduce it, you know, really stretching yourself. And I think... Uh, that would be sort of the the key idea, and I would love to learn here about uh, you know individuals who are trying and if there really are any limiting factors. Because I've been now uh, spending almost like thirty years talking to individuals who only reach the sub elite level, and ask them you know what was it that was really holding you back, and what I find interesting is that they thought that they could get better. The reason why they stopped was that they thought that there were other people who were ahead of them that they didn't really understand how they would be able to reach. Well, I guess like in the case of the violinists, the people who had reached the age of 20 with only 3,000 hours, they were still in the top one-tenth of one percent of performers, but they realized, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to put in the other four to 6,000 hours so quickly as my competitors. You know, and, and, and that is, I guess, a challenge in a competitive society. So if you have basically the very best to actually now learn more and put in more time practicing, they're not just going to stop for five years to allow the less competitive ones to catch up. So basically, what you really need if you're in the lower group is somehow find a way that you can be gaining more in practice than the ones who are at the elite level. So if they keep working and trying to perfect their skill, they're actually going to be ahead of you. And it's hard to see how you would be able to catch up with them. Let me offer one suggestion there. So, yes, they might not be... Um, they might never get as good as the classically trained and classically performing violinists who go out into orchestras and who continue doing deliberate practice. But... Let's combine two fields. Let's take a violinist and put him in a rock and roll band and maybe kind of give him an electronic violin. Then, bam, they might be... Everybody else might have done 500 hours of practice in that and combining two areas, and they suddenly have 3,500 hours under them. And that might... Combining areas to create new areas might be a lucrative way for a top performer but not a lead performer to to be successful. And, And I think that feeds nicely in what we were talking about, the motivation. So if you would enjoy now making music with another group, uh, that, I guess, should be the, the key goal. Uh, to basically be winning international competitions or winning gold medals at the Olympics. I mean, even if 100 million people were training the same sport, you know, using all the effective, there would still only be one gold medal. 
So, so basically, I think connecting up here with this idea that you want to actually produce something that has emotional significance for you. You know, your work. You want to play something with friends and actually produce music. That after doing that, you actually feel better about yourself, and and now you're motivated perhaps to go and work on certain things that would actually allow you to do an even better job when you get together next time. Yeah. So part of it might be again figuring uh, to keep that motivating factor going, finding other areas you can combine and so on to create new areas where you're already an. Uh, given to be an expert or you have a huge starting point right head start and 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 in some ways i mean you're really trying to produce music experience and and i think you know there may be more creative ways especially now with the technical developments where you actually will be able to find a niche for producing musical experiences that other people haven't found it, it seems like we we have this natural instinct to put our because we're humans and primates we put ourselves in a hierarchy whatever we do so let's say i'm interested in chess there's a chess ranking system from one to a million and i want to always fi- figure out where i am in that hierarchy because i want to be either the alpha and not the omega and and so on but if i can change we, we humans have the ability to change the hierarchy they're in and if you could kind of change the hierarchy you're in where the practice this and that you've put in is either puts you higher to being the alpha or whether it's it becomes easier to become the alpha because it's a new area completely i think that should be a reasonable goal for for achieving competence in something right and 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 i i see that parents you know really enjoy spending time with their kids so if you actually decided to take up chess to be able to play with your uh, son or daughter that would basically now allow for something that could develop over uh, years and provide this precious relationship. And it could be music making, it could be some you know, physical sport. But I think that kind of uh, uh, interaction between a parent and a child, especially when they're young, provides the child and also the parent was something quite unique that I think is is really valuable and that having a teacher that can help the parent now avoiding basically putting the child into learning situations where they are going to be keep failing because you don't that's part of the teacher's job is guide the student you know, up to the next level. And so how did you get into this? Like, what were you... My guess is at some point you were trying to get good at something, maybe even elite at something, and maybe it didn't quite work out for you. Like, <laughs> what what were you trying to go for? Well, you know, I, I think I was always interested in trying to understand what people that I admire, what they were thinking. Uh, so I had a phase in high school when I was reading a lot of biographies and and, and, and basically trying to understand the trajectory of people who were successful. And, and I think I kind of realized that if I were to try to be successful in any one domain, that would almost preclude me from now basically becoming as good as I could be and actually researching uh, the general process here of being excellent. So what biographies were you reading? Well, you know, I read about, you know, Michelangelo and and all the sort of Pasteur and all the sort of the famous uh, kind of artists and and scientists. Uh, And I just thought it was just striking, you know, this 
kind of process that wasn't given as much emphasis on what they had to do in order to achieve their, uh, you know, eventually most recognized work. Well, it's interesting because you you mentioned Picasso in the book, how, and we know him all from his, let's say, Cubist days where he was really kind of going out of the box. But the reality is he was also, before that, just learning the basics was one of the best painters of his time of the basics of painting and traditional styles of painting. And I think also another important thing is to to learn to to master and become elite at the basics before sort of developing your own, or maybe that beca- gives you the ability to develop your own point of view and so on. Yeah, I I, I totally agree, and I, and I think that creativity, knowing what other people have already done, if you want to do something new. It's going to be really helpful to master all the things that people have previously done because then you're going to know when you're actually doing something that goes outside of what has already uh, been uh, done. And I think the kind of techniques that you will learn will also then help you once you know what you want to do differently to do it uh, with uh, the technical skill that will actually compel people and, and really make them see here what you've achieved. I mean, another great example in art is Andy Warhol. Like People people know him, again, from almost from his factory where he didn't even work on many of his own art pieces that sold for tens of millions, but uh, he was like a... Ma- in the 50s, he was like a master illustrator. He was the best illustrator in the advertising industry like he knew how to draw and even though that wasn't what he became famous for later like he knew the basics right and 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 i think that helps maybe some students realize the benefits of actually learning the fundamentals as a way of actually being able now to reach that level where you will be able to see how you can make a contribution that's different from what people have previously done. And what what other... So obviously your book, Peak, is really important for understanding um, these components of deliberate practice. You break down uh, the ideas of what talent is. You talk about the 10,000-hour rule. And by the way, the problem I've always had with the concept concept of the 10,000-hour rule is, let's say I suddenly am transported back to the 1800s. So with current, with 21st century chess training techniques, within a year or two, I could be at the level of the world champion level in the 1800s in chess. Obviously, that can't happen now. Um, but it's interesting, like, because it's really, because uh, ch- training techniques in every field evolve as well to sort of shortcut, let's say, a prior century's 10,000 hours. So, so presumably, whatever it takes to become world class now, 100 years from now to get world class now might take only 1,000 hours. Right. And, and, and that's the reason why I think it's important to talk about absolute levels of performance. And, and one way that you could potentially test that in chess is to see whether people actually can pick the right move for a wide range of chess positions. So that would be basically objective without actually taking into account what the current level of chess is. Hmm. And if we take sports, you know, if you ran the marathon with the times that you could get a gold medal in the beginning of the Olympic Games, you know, that would almost just get you in to be uh, uh, competing in the Boston uh, Marathon. So, so basically, there's this change in the level of performance that people can do. So to really understand, you know, this question here about what people can do, you need to sort of look at historically what people were able to do. And now you can see that, you know, relatively normal average people are able now to reach the qualifying time for the Boston Marathon. But they obviously, in order to win the Boston Marathon, you're talking about something that is really not 
you know, something that was even conceivable, you know, uh, 120 years ago. So what's, what's, and this is kind of a little more meta, but what's the benefits of being elite? What if I'm happy to just qualify? Like, 100 years ago, I would have been the world champion. Now I just barely qualify for the Boston Marathon. Um, but it yet, so there's, it's the same performance, but one would have made me elite in 100 years ago. Now I'm like, okay, I could get into the Boston Marathon, which is still great. It shows I have an incredible confidence, but that's it. So what's the benefit psychologically of being the best in the world as opposed to simply good and something that I understand the subtleties of and have mastered to an extent but not achieved world class? Well, I think that's a you know very good question, and it gets back to this idea of what is it that would be motivating to you? And I believe that that may be different, you know, when you're seven years old and when you're 12 years old and when you're 15 and when you're 18. And I guess if we're talking about marathon running, maybe you will peak in your uh, late 20s. So there's this trajectory, and I'm not sure that the motivation that actually would motivate you as a, you know, child to basically train endurance events is going to be similar to whatever it is if you're, you know, good enough so you will actually be given resources to keep training at the more elite levels. So, so I think by really concentrating on the journey where, you know, basically making sure that individuals are gaining something really important, like, for example, go out running with your parent or something and being able now to sort of learn the value here of deciding on one thing that you're going to train and then actually see how you, by basically concentrated training, maybe you only need to do half an hour a day initially, but you can actually get that self-control of you being able to influence uh, what you ultimately will be able to do. So it seems like well-being or happiness or whatever you want to call it might come from this state of improvement as a po- and and it turns out ability also comes from a state of improvement otherwise you as like in the medical practice like you could decline if you're not constantly trying to improve so this state of improvement might be what contributes the most to happiness as opposed to yes I'm number 1 or whatever right you know and like it would be interesting if you had measured well-being somehow in the three categories of violinists that you had identified right although I find it a little hard, you know, to understand what is it that people would, how do you actually get well-being? So we actually try to, you know, look at the kind of behavior. And if you're willing now to invest in training that actually uh, will ultimately allow you to reach even higher levels, then uh, basically the satisfaction here of being able to maybe help patients that is actually yeah. the thing that's going to drive you and also maybe make you feel good that you know that you actually did something beyond maybe what a normal uh, uh, doctor would be able to do. And uh, so so tell me, other than your book, Peak, which I recommend everybody read because I think now this is going to be the, the Bible of how to achieve peak performance, what other books would you recommend in the field that people could read? Well... <clears throat> I think it probably will depend on what are the activity that they might be the most interested in because I think there are some good books that are focused primarily on sports. Uh, there are other books that are looking more at economics and managerial sides. Uh, 
But I think if if somebody read our book and decided now that they were interested in a particular domain, uh, then I think it would be easier for me to kind of guide them. And, and hopefully, uh, uh, we would find that some people would be able to sort of take on that challenge of trying to reach, uh, you know, basically the highest level of performance. And if they run into any limits, I would love to learn about them. Excellent. Well, Anders Ericsson, author of Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. Great book. Thank you so much for coming up to my podcast, and I really appreciate it. It was nice well, meeting you. Well, this was just a delight. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Anders. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.